0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Persevering in Hope, with a message entitled, It Will Be Fair. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I don't know if you've heard it, but I'm almost certain that at some time in your life, in your growing up years, you did. You heard it when you complained. You said, it isn't fair. And then someone said, get used to it. The world isn't fair. I don't know who said those words to you, but I bet someone did. And I bet that someone was an adult. You know, I don't know what you did with that bit of information. I mean, perhaps as the years went by, you followed that bit of wisdom to a conclusion. You now scratch and claw and fight and get your share, no matter what it takes, after all. It's not justice that prevails, rather the spoils go to the strong. Life's not fair, so get used to it. You don't have to be fair either. After all, if you're just waiting for fair, you're going to be left behind. And then, of course, there are those who simply despair. Life's not fair, they say, and so when they encounter injustice, they simply fall into the blackest of depression. It is true that life's not fair. Sometimes the wicked live into old age and the righteous die of cancer. At the age of 35, life's not fair. Sometimes the ethical businessman struggles and then the cheater and the liar and the betrayer becomes overwhelmingly wealthy. Sometimes politicians come to power through lies. And sometimes the famous those who are adored by millions are among the worst possible people in their own private lives. We know the stories, life isn't fair. You're gonna have to get used to that. But deep inside of every single human being, there's a cry of protest. We might say that life's not fair, but we want it to be fair. To say life's not fair, well, that's not just an observation, it's an outrage. And here's the good news for every follower of Jesus. In the end, when Jesus comes back again, it will be fair. Injustice and evil and villainy will not go unnoticed any longer. Every single act will be judged with objective and thorough justice. The saying, life's not fair, one day, that saying will pass away. It will be outdated. It's going to be archaic. The saying of another time. This is the enduring hope of every single believer. Well, we've embarked on a study of 2 Thessalonians and we're introduced to a new community of Christians who, soon after their conversion, or perhaps even in the midst of their conversion, began to experience relentless persecution. Their city hated them. The Jewish synagogue and the Gentile idolatrous culture joined forces in an unlikely joint venture. People had rioted against believers. Uh, They were no longer welcome in polite circles. People tended to boycott their businesses. But Paul, the man who had brought them the gospel, was a man who had experienced enough of his own persecution and he has noticed their persecution, and he's overwhelmed with something he's noticed among these new believers. They are steadfast. They were unmoved by the pressure of an unrelentingly hostile Jewish and Gentile community. Indeed, Paul sees they've grown in their faith far more than he would have anticipated, and in consequence, Paul can't help himself. He says he's been boasting about them to everyone. He simply can't stop talking about how remarkable was their courage. They trusted in Christ in the midst of the fire. Their love for one another was increasing. They remained calm and collected and unwavering in the face of opposition. Well, that's the introduction of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Having noticed that, Paul then takes this matter one step further. So let's read our text for today, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 8. and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, our text begins with the phrase, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, to which we might respond, well, what is evidence of the righteous judgment of God? I mean, what is it that shows us that God is fair and that he reserves a day in which he will judge the world with absolute and perfect justice? How do we know? Where's the evidence? When will it become fair? You know, to that, Paul responds that the attitude he has seen in the Thessalonian believers, the attitude of unflinching faithfulness to Jesus in the face of persecution, that's evidence of God's righteous judgment. Now, I know that seems a little strange. I mean, for instance, today, we know that every single day there are Christians who are killed for no reason other than their faith. For instance, I do know that as I record this today, In the last three months, some 500 Ethiopian Christians have been killed by Muslim extremists. It's targeted killings. And even among many North American Christians, we don't hardly pay attention. I can hardly fathom that. Are we to assume that this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God? See, one hears of stories of Christians in Iran being sentenced to five years in prison for simply participating in a Christian house church. How is that evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Or consider this report from Open Doors Ministry. There's a story of a new believer in Vietnam, a man only known as Po, P-O-H. You know, po belongs to a group of people called the Hmong people. Poe is 20 years old. He's finally let his family know of his faith in Jesus. And his father gathered all the family relatives and villagers to demand that his son abandon Jesus. And at one point in time, his father even picked up a rock to kill him. He's been driven from his family and village, but Poe says, it's fine as long as I can keep my faith because I know where I'm going if I die. So how you might ask is the suffering of this young man evidence of God's righteous judgment? Well, I could go on and on. In the last 10 years, there's been a great part of the church of Syria that's been destroyed. Many North American Christians are ignorant that a Holocaust has been going on among our brothers and sisters in Christ there. As far as the press is concerned, they're not concerned. North Korean concentration camps are full of Christians who have been imprisoned for their faith. Again, silence. All over the world come the stories of the persecution of believers and the remarkable courage of brothers and sisters who are laying down their lives for Christ because they have concluded that to belong to Jesus is more important and more precious than life itself. But that's not fair. And Paul says that faithful endurance of Christians who will not renounce their faith nor their fidelity to Jesus, this is proof positive of God's righteous judgment. Well, how? Let's try to explain that. Notice again verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Paul is saying your suffering indicates you're worthy of the kingdom. Now, let's make sure we don't misunderstand. Paul is definitely not saying that the suffering of these believers is earning a spot in the kingdom of God. No, it's not. It's not about becoming worthy of the kingdom. Rather, notice, he says it's evidence that they are already worthy. So how do we understand that? Well, near the end of the book of Revelation, that is in chapter 18, there's a lengthy poem. It describes the fall of Babylon. Now, it seems to me that Babylon is being used in this poem as an image. Well, in actual history, it was Babylon that attacked the city of Jerusalem and slaughtered so many of her citizens and burned her temple to the ground and then took many of her remaining citizens into Babylon, where they lived out their years in exile. Psalm 137 was written by one of those exiles who said, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. You can almost hear it, can't you? A defeated people, humiliated, filled with grief, the death of their loved ones, astonished that the temple of the God of heaven lay as a smoking and ruined place. And their captors also become tormentors. Why don't you grab one of your lyres, your harps, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then they would roar with laughter and the people of God would hang their heads in shame. That is Babylon. Babylon then became a symbol of all the persecutors of God's people in history. But in Revelation 18, there's a poem, a poem about all the people who have grown rich by Babylon. But now, when Babylon is destroyed, they hang their heads in shame. For all the people who trusted in Babylon will ultimately be humiliated when Babylon will finally be thrown down forever. It's a reversal of fortune. Those who trust in Babylon are finally and ultimately overthrown. But those who have abandoned Babylon already are finally and ultimately vindicated.
0: The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes the bi-monthly magazine, Truth and Life. This year, Truth and Life has had a unique discipleship focus, with each issue highlighting a different marker of discipleship. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission and provide trustworthy Bible resources at no cost. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.
1: there's a question that 2 Thessalonians addresses. Where do you belong? Do you belong to the kingdom of this world? And if you do, the kingdom of this world has the potential to offer you riches, fame, and the approval of people. Because you see, if you adopt the values of the culture in which you live, the culture will adopt you. You will belong. You know, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, that would have included paying homage to their endless gods and goddesses, but it would also have included the sensual lifestyle that was a part of that culture. And Peter talked about that in 1 Peter 4, 3-4. He said, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you, that is you believers, do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Yeah, says Peter, if you owned the values of that culture, they would accept you. But if you reject those values, they become overwhelmingly aggressive and hostile towards you. I can't help here but draw a straight line from what Peter said in his day what Western culture has become today. It wasn't always this way, but it has become this way. Unless you now approve of today's sexual ethic, you're maligned as an intolerant hater, on par with a racist. You should be canceled. Uh, Don't you see, it's far easier to go with the flow. The hostility against anyone who doesn't is enormous. So go back again to 2 Thessalonians because that was the situation in which believers found themselves then. And in some ways, the Roman Empire, well, it was remarkably tolerant. You could have any religion you wanted. They didn't care, provided you also poured out libations to Caesar and acknowledged the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses. But to say, as Christians did, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, well, that was to place yourself outside of the culture and outside of the approval of that culture. You might remember what Jesus said in John 15, 18, and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You belong to another kingdom, said Jesus. And that's Paul's word to the Thessalonians you've already stated that you prefer the kingdom of God to the kingdom of this world, to this Babylon. And this is evidence that you're worthy of the kingdom of God, for God has given you the desire for his kingdom and not of this world. Ah, fair enough. But how then does that give evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Well, in order to understand that, we need to go just a bit further. Verse 6 says, "...since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, before we answer how that gives evidence of the righteous judgment of God, would you just notice what this says? God considers it just. God thinks it's fair. God thinks that this accords with his perfect standards of righteousness, that he should repay those who persecute Christ's church. You know, some have argued, and I think rightly, that this is a demonstration of the Old Testament law for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is, if justice is to be justice, it must give an exact recompense equal to the injury that was done. And so in this case, if there are men and women who persecute Christ's church, God, in accordance with exact recompense, will then persecute those who persecuted his church. See, I need to stop here and give a warning to those men and women who are persecuting Christ's church today. In the world to come, Jesus Christ will return vengeance on your head for what you do to his church. If, as is done in China today, that state-run churches are required to now give patriotic messages and forego the preaching of the gospel, God will consider it righteous to persecute those who demand such things of his church. These people who make such laws will be held personally accountable and will suffer under the hands of Jesus. Now to verse 7a. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. That is, the day of persecution may seem long, and from our vantage point, we might ask, when is it going to end? But the end will surely come. He will, says Paul, grant relief. How wonderful it will be seen to the afflicted. Suddenly the tables are turned. Suddenly things are fair. When does that occur? We'll look at verses 7b to 8. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The word Paul uses here is the word apocalypsis or revelation. It means to uncover something. It means to remove a veil, you know, a veil which hides something. And then the veil is removed, and then Jesus appears from heaven with his mighty angels. I can't help but when I read this to think about a passage which Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There exists in most people today a blinder, it's a veil. It's an impenetrable darkness that prevents them from seeing the value of the cross of Jesus. Thinking this cross to be a matter of no great importance, they simply dismiss the rest of the Christian message. But a revelation is a removing of the veil. It's what happens at conversion. Suddenly, the veil is removed, and then the new convert sees what he now knows to be the most obvious truth in the whole universe. The death of Jesus provides forgiveness and access into the presence of God. What he once ignored now looms overwhelmingly large on his or her horizon. It becomes the all-encompassing vision of his life. This is an apt description of the coming of Jesus. Look, Jesus has always been Lord of all. He rules all things. All men, all women are accountable to him for all they do. All men and women owe to Jesus an infinite debt of gratitude and an infinite debt of surrender to him. But now this all-important truth is veiled. That's why some persecute the followers of Jesus. They think it a matter of no consequence. After all, it's not about fair. It's about power and getting your own way. It's about removing this irritating and perhaps even dangerous group of people. And then comes the great unveiling, the revelation, when Jesus is revealed. And he comes with his mighty angels. Now, this is all that Paul says at this moment, because in his first letter, he's already described that in detail. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So then Paul puts 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 together with what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now then, when Paul does that, that is, when Jesus appears with the cry of command, the archangel crying out military orders for the great angelic fighting force of God, Paul says in verse 8, angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In other words, when Jesus comes, he not only comes to give relief to his church and to call them home, but he also comes to punish the wicked. Let's get back to our original question. How does this belief give evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Think about it this way. Let's say you're going out to war with an army and you come upon a greater force twice your size. But let's say that you know that marching some 30 minutes back of you is the rest of your army, so large, so impressive, that the outcome of the battle will not be in doubt. And so as the initial battle begins, your army shows no fear whatsoever that's a sign to your opponents. Why aren't they intimidated, they say? What do they know that we don't know? Well, it's the same in the present hour, says Paul. It may not be fair, and it may be that the church looks helpless and has no power, but we know something our opponents don't know, and therefore we're steadfast. And this, says Paul, is evidence of God's righteous judgment. Well, evidence to whom? Not to believers. We already have all the evidence we need in the resurrection of our Lord. No, no, it's evidence to our persecutors. When they see our calm demeanor, they ask themselves, what is it that they know that we don't know? And here's the answer. We know that the righteous judge stands at the door and even our enemies wonder whether it might not be the case. Thanks,
0: John. You know, John, I'm always amazed and challenged that it would seem like the most persecuted of Christians around the world also seem to be the most steadfast. Has that anything
1: to say to us as the Western Church? Well, you know, Ben, you are right. Um, there are a great many persecuted believers are steadfast. I mean, we do know, uh, for instance, in today's world, that in uh, Syria, when so many believers lost their lives, we don't know of a single one who recanted their faith. That's remarkable. And yet we have in our culture today, you know, all sorts of people in, you know, living in the ease of the Western world or simply walking away from the faith. So uh, I think that is something that we should be considering. Uh, however, we also know from history that there have been times when persecution has been so severe that people have turned from their faith. So uh, we shouldn't look at persecution as a magic panacea. Um, We should, however, ask that should it come that God give us the stability to stand firm in the midst of the storm. Thanks, John. And remember to join us
0: again tomorrow as we continue our series, Persevering in Hope, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. (laughs) Great missions require great partnerships. When we join forces, we can carry the gospel of Jesus so much further than anybody could alone. This month, we're thrilled to share that Back to the Bible Canada is introducing a renewed monthly partner program now called Companions for the Gospel. Monthly partners play a key role in this ministry. They provide a reliable, consistent source of funds that helps sustain current and future gospel-centered initiatives. We want to encourage you to become a part of this essential group of partners. There are a few benefits to becoming a Companion of the Gospel, but even more important is the impact your partnership will make in sharing the truth of God's Word. To find out more, to sign up, or to give a one-time gift, Visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.